Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I'm beginning today with a public service announcement. Uh, as we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And if you think about in the first four chapters, Paul talks about problems of division within the church. Starting in chapter 5, he moves on from divisions in the church and he starts talking about sex. So, which by the way does cause divisions in the church to be fair, uh, but if, uh, if you're a parent and you, know, you have a, maybe a smaller child, I'm not going to say anything that's sensationalistic, but we're going to be honest uh, as we unpack this because we believe that the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and it is the critic of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It is good for us to consider these things. The other reason that we need to consider is because, frankly, the world is talking about sex. Do you want God talking about it all or not? And I say yes. So we're going to let God's voice be heard. That said, some of you, you might have smaller children, and you say, ah, they're not ready for this. That's okay. What you can do is you can get them out of here right now. Because I have my friend Tiny standing at the back, and uh, he will be glad to take them up through like fifth grade, right? Uh, he'll be glad, sixth grade even. Man, what do you think I'm going to say today, dude? Uh, anyway. <laughs> it's going to be real good, y'all. Uh, but if you want to send your kid, Tiny is right back there, and feel free to go right now because they are ready to take them, and they will have a time with the kids and leading them as well. So. All right, you've been warned. All right, we got, one, we got one or a couple that are going. Okay, there you go. I just wanted to say that up front. Again, I promise not to be sensationalistic, but we are going to be honest today, okay? Second, while other kids are making their way to go back, welcome back from the students from camp. How was the week? Hey, so just so you know, y'all were gone this time last week, but everybody that was here in, in our church that's online with us, we made a commitment to pray for you this week, and we did. And we have new believers in the house after this last week. Isn't that awesome? That's what we hope for. That's what we hope for. Every single, every single thing that I heard from the kids was just one of the best weeks that they've had all year. And that's what we were praying for, right? Awesome. Okay, so let's jump in. First Corinthians chapter 5. All right, so Corinth, this, this letter that Paul writes to this church at Corinth Corinth, just so you know, was basically like the Las Vegas of Greece. Really was. It was, it was located, just so you know, it was located on an, on an isthmus. And it was, so basically, it was between two ports, right? Uh, anytime there are ports, it gets interesting. It was located between two ports. It made it a really popular vacation spot. People, people wanted to go there. Um, it also made it a really popular spot for business, because the ships would come through, and so there was a lot of trade and commerce. There were also a lot of slaves because of it. But there was a lot going on in this, this place. Uh, the yuppies were moving in. You know, the young, upwardly mobile professionals were moving in because you have all the ships coming in, all of the porting that was happening, all the people bringing their wares and whatnot. And shock of the world, they brought their lifestyle with them. I know that just totally blows your mind, right? But they brought their lifestyle with them. Also, in the city, if you've ever been to Corinth, there were temples literally everywhere. 
to the worship of all kinds of gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, and the worship rituals often included what was called temple prostitution. They would consider literally orgies and sex acts as a part of the worship that they were offering. I told you we were talking about sex today, right? All right. This was actually something that they thought was a part of the worship that they were doing. Paul starts this church in Corinth. So you can imagine what the world around it looks like, right? And you can imagine all the, where do you think the Christians came from? They came from there. And they were brought into the church. That's a lot of history and that's a lot of practice that you're bringing into the church from your background, you can imagine, right? All that was going on. So sexual immorality, honestly, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. But what the church was dealing with went even further than what the world outside of the church was even going through. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul says, it is actually reported. I almost read that and it's like Paul's going, I can't believe I'm having to write this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. These are to the believers. This is to the church. And the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, stop. Imagine that you're having to address some things going on in a church. Paul clearly is. He says, I'm actually having to deal with a person that is sleeping with his father's probably stepmom, to be fair. Mom or stepmom, but probably stepmom. We're not sure. And he says, sleeping with. They're actually having sexual intercourse with each other. It doesn't mean that they're occupying a same bed. It means they're literally having sexual intercourse with each other. And just so you know, for those of you that love Greek, it's in the present continual tense, which means this is still going on. Also, apparently the church knows about it. So Paul is writing this letter to the church to address something going on in the church. There was another problem, by the way, that was connected, not just to this, But he says, there's another problem here. And you see it in verse 2. He says, you're arrogant. So you have this particularly, you know, graphic sexual relationship that the church knows about. He goes, and it's not just that that's going on. It's that y'all are arrogant. So he's calling them out for a few things here. One of the questions is, why weren't they? Why wasn't the church dealing with it? Why weren't they dealing with it? Uh, Here's a couple of thoughts. Maybe they were thinking something like this. Well, who am I to judge? You ever heard that lately? I mean, who am I to judge? So, some, by the way, it seems, thought something like this. Well, since Jesus had freed me from the law, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Some were actually thinking something like that. They're wrong, but they were thinking it. The way Paul talks about it, it does seem to assume that the folks in the church knew that what was going on was wrong, but they were doing absolutely nothing about it. And you got to wonder, Why? Why not do something about it? Maybe, scholars speculate, maybe they didn't want the blowback from the public if they make this, well, public. It creates a scandal. It's kind of a stain on the image of the church. And so you kind of go, be quiet with it. Shh. We don't want everybody out there to know what was actually been going on in, in here. So for the good of the church, we need to be quiet. That's a possibility. To be honest, we're not sure. Some have speculated that the person that was doing this was a really prominent figure. So maybe there were some concerns that if we call this person out, if we call these people out, you know, they leave, uh, we lose tithe. 
Some scholars wonder. But we got to ask the question, why didn't the church say something? Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt this way? I mean, have you ever felt that there's someone that you know and love, they're doing something that is wrong, and you're concerned that if you say something to them, the consequences of doing the right thing are going to be tough to deal with? Have you ever been there before? You might think of your child. You might be thinking of a friend. You might be thinking of your spouse. And there's just a pattern of their life that you say, somebody has got to speak up because the road that they're on is not good for them. And then everybody gets quiet. And you go, why? Why? Paul is pointing out that a brother and sister in the faith are being harmed by life choices. And he says, what bothers me is not just what they're doing, but the fact that you're quiet about it. It bothers him. If you look in verse 2, Paul says, shouldn't you be filled with grief? Shouldn't this grieve you? Meaning a deep mourning after someone you loved has died a lot. That's what it means. That what is actually happening in the church, you should have the same kind of reaction as if somebody that you loved deeply had died. And you don't. What's wrong with you? And then he drops a bomb. And you see this in verse 3. He's already dropped a couple of bombs, fair enough. But then he drops a bomb in verse 3 and verse 5. He says, let him who has done this be removed from you. And then in verse 5, he says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When's the last time you heard that in church? By the way, handing him over to Satan, that's not, that doesn't, you don't hear that a lot in scripture, really only a couple of times. But people read this and they go, man, this dude is intense. He's intense. I want to think about it. Remove them from the fellowship and hand them over to Satan. Again, not what you hear very often in church. Here's what you're likely wondering, I think. What about loving the person? Right? I mean, why not just love them, Paul? I mean, how is that loving? Do you wonder that? They need to be removed from you. How are we to be embracing of people while simultaneously kicking them them out of the church? How does that work, Paul? Maybe you have a question like that. If so, that's fair. Um, And why not hand them over to somebody other than Satan? That just seems intense, right? Hand them over to to Jim or somebody else, you know, somebody that's just a little less evil. Let's hand them over to somebody else, especially when you see other stories. I mean, think of some of the stories of the conversions that you see in Scripture. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was also a really corrupt little man, but he comes to Christ. Amazing. Uh, Let's see. Can we think about it? Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. What an amazing story of a person coming to a saving faith in Jesus. Well, if you're constantly removing people, how are these stories going to come about? We would probably ask that question. Uh, How about this? Even Paul, the guy writing this letter, had murdered people and other stuff. You probably have this question. How does that work? There's something that you need to, to keep in mind, really hold to the front of your mind, and it's this. All of these people that I just mentioned, they, they had one thing in common that was really important. They had come to a place of repentance. Every single person that I just listed had come to a place of repentance, basically saying this, Jesus is Lord, my way was wrong, his way is right, I'm going his way. In other words, they all became followers of Lenny Kravitz, are you going to go my way? And they said, yes. Yes, that's the difference. Also, we, also, we have to keep this in mind. There is more to the church than just accepting people. There's not less, 
but there is more. It's also a place for loving accountability. It was meant to be like that. The church is meant to be a place where we are protected from sin and its effects. It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to stand out. And by it, I mean we. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to stand out. And so this is the purpose. And Paul tells you, why would you remove them from the church? And the answer is, you remove them from the protections of the church so that they can experience the pain of sin so that they can wake up to what they are doing. Then go let them have that life. See how it goes for them. No, nobody here, Paul didn't say, and this is my favorite part of the letter that I'm writing you. It's just an important part. Let them go experience the fullness of their life and see where it takes them. Um, Just so you know, we have other images of this in Scripture. You remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son that looks at his father and says, give me my inheritance and let me go on my way. Do you think that grieved the father? Because I think the answer is yes, but he let him go. He did let him go, and he waited, and the son returns. You have that. But you also have this. Paul draws a picture to the church at Corinth from Passover. So God told Egypt, because of their persistent rebellion, an angel of death was going to visit the homes of those that didn't have the lamb's blood on their doors. And when the angel of death saw the blood on the door, it passed over the home. And here's the image that Paul's trying to give here. So inside the home, under the blood, you are safe. Outside of the home, outside of the covering of the blood, you are not safe. So here's the hope, and you see this in verse 5. The hope is that they will repent. Notice what it says, that the, the works of the flesh may be destroyed. Not the works of the Spirit, but the works of the flesh might be destroyed and so that this person can return and stand before Christ on the judgment day redeemed and whole. That's the goal. They suffer so that they can repent. It's not just they suffer for the sake of suffering. That isn't it. I was thinking about it. It reminded me, this was a a lot of years ago, sitting down with a family whose kid had become a drug addict. And as I was sitting with them, they're like, we don't don't know what to do. Because what the kid was doing, not, not only were they, not only was the addiction entrenched in their life, but they were literally stealing from the parents. They had stolen literally TVs off the walls. They had stolen furniture from the home. Uh, they were having to find ways to rework the doors because they were bringing drug dealers into the home and there were other siblings that were in the home. And the parents were going, we, 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 don't, we don't know what to do. Well, they took steps that were very similar to this. It was a loving confrontation But the way that they looked at it was eventually we've taken every measure of restoration that we can take to love you well, but we have other people here that we have to protect. And so to keep what you're up to away from your younger siblings watching what you're doing to our home, we're pulling you out of this place. You get to go live with your choices for a while instead of us constantly coming behind you and making up for all the choices that you're making. You get to go be on your own for a bit. Now, what was the purpose? The purpose was so that their kid that they loved would come to a place of seeing their need to change their life because nothing else at this point had worked. I hope that you see that Paul's coming from the same heart. I love you enough to do a hard thing, and we need to love you enough to do a hard thing. 
I mean, there is a reminder here. This is after every attempt at reconciliation has happened, and they simply will not respond. You know, Jesus gives us the story on how to do this. You see it in Matthew chapter 18. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you reconcile a broken relationship? Well, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, literal sin, not they did something annoying or you didn't get your way. That's, that's not necessarily sin. We're talking about sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, what does it say? You've gained a brother. But go to them. You don't sit there and say, I'd sure just wish things were different. Go. Try to make it happen. Matthew 18, 16. If he doesn't listen, take two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, we're going to confirm that what's said to be going on here is actually going on here. We're going to get some other people that are wise and godly to be a part of this. But even here, the goal is what? Restoration. The bringing back together of a broken relationship. Third, Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. You bring the assembly together. You call them out lovingly. You pray with them for the purpose of restoring them. And then Jesus says, Matthew 18, 17, if he still refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, how does society view them? Out. They've got to go. They've got to go. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 5 and why all this matters, because you see this in verse 10. It's because Paul says, anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, he says, don't even eat with such a one. Eat with them. Don't even eat with them. What does he mean? Well, eating back then, that means fellowship. But I think it's more than that. Most scholars actually think that he's referring to communion. Like when you get together, you take the cup, you eat the bread, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Most scholars would say, no, it's not going to work. Basically saying, don't do that because you don't want to give the impression to everybody that you're fine with what they're up to. Go make it right. You actually saw something like this not too long ago, very publicly, didn't you? Because you had a person in leadership in the Catholic church tell Nancy Pelosi that she could not take communion with the church. You actually saw it. And of course, people were saying, what about separation of church and state? And I was like, I don't remember the priest being governing official, but I do remember the priest being a priest. He called her out, right? And why did he do it? The whole purpose, even if you read the letter, the whole purpose is that she would be restored to what is under the blessing of the work of God. That was why he did it. So here's why we do it. One, we do it just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, we do it for the good of the person. Why would you lovingly confront? And first is for the good of the person. That should be your why. It's because the path that they're on is ultimately harmful and destructive even for them. But sin never is in isolation because it always has tentacles. It always has arms that reaches out and it has impacts that go well beyond just the person. And so second, we do it for the good of the church. To love people enough to protect them. If you look in chapter 5 or 6, it says, Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's probably not the... Nowadays you go, I'm a new lump. <laughs> right? I'm a new lump. Now, 
Here's the reason that he says, we would use the word yeast, probably not leaven, and that's a fungus that makes bread rise. Every time you're eating bread, you're like, I'm eating fungus right now. But the reason that he gives the example is because it grows quickly and it multiplies quickly. And sin is the same way. So you do it for the good of the person. You do it for the good of the church. Third, you do it in the service of Jesus. He gives this example in verses 7 and 8. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's another way of saying it. Why would you tolerate what Christ died on the cross for? Why would you tolerate that? Here's what it doesn't mean. Let me be clear. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean unbelievers and sinners can't come to worship because, well, it'd be empty. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't mean that. They can. But they're not to be counted as family until they take seriously what they're doing to the family. At some point, we've got to come to the realization that, well, not everything is about us. That's what Paul's saying. It also doesn't mean that if you have a, a sin struggle that you can't come to worship. Because again, this space and every other church in the world would be empty. We've got to remember what Jesus said. Everyone who's sick needs a doctor. Who's sick? All of us. Every single one of us. But he also wants to see a posture of awareness and openness to his correction rather than defiance and arrogance. You remember the second thing that he pointed out to the church at Corinth? You're arrogant. You don't listen. You're not open. It's time to change. Let me give you some common concerns to this passage. I think you might find helpful. Can we be friends with sinners? Yes. Good news. I can be a friend to myself. You can be a friend to yourself, and you can be a friend to others. If you look in, in verses 9 through 11, it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, meaning literally everybody outside of the church, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. <laughs> he goes, in that case, you'd have to leave the world, <laughs> right? Where are you going to go? But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard, a swindler, don't eat with them. Don't. Interestingly, the church usually does this the other way around if you look at it. We do it backwards from what Paul said. Typically what churches do, people who aren't Christ followers, well, typically they act like they're not Christ followers, right? That's, that makes sense. But he's talking about people inside the church. Here, here's what I typically see. I'll typically see Christians that want to disinfect their children from the world. And Paul's over here going, hello? The world's going to act like the world. What do you expect? But you allow this to thrive in your own church? Come on. We see it going the other way. So that's one thing. Here's the second thing. What about not judging people? Have you ever heard that? Don't be judging people. Um, well, we do anyway. And everybody does, to be fair. Paul, in verse 3, says, I pronounced a judgment on the one who did such a thing. So he just went ahead and said it right off the bat. But what about judge not that you not be judged? What about that? There are a couple of things that you need to remember. Here's the first. Jesus spent his entire earthly ministry telling people that they were missing the mark morally as well as their belief in God. He just did. I mean, right after saying, judge not lest you be judged, he looked at the Pharisees and said they were a bunch of dogs. That was a judgment, by the way right? So we do make judgments. Even in Ephesians 5.11, it says, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. But he says this, expose them. You got to be making a judgment as to what is evil. 
and also what is good. You've got to be making these judgments all the time. So speaking the truth does not equal judging. In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus said that, he was talking about sitting in judgment over someone as if first, you had no sin. Get over that. You do. And second, that you're in a place to actually pass a sentence on them because you believe that they're beyond hope. That's what he's talking about. Not make no judgments whatsoever about anything happening in the world. That is not what he meant. So speaking the truth does not equal judging. You know what? Turning a blind eye is also not loving people. It's just not. A couple of things I want you to remember here this morning, my friends, because this is a challenging passage. It's one of those that when I started, I go, why did the Lord want me to teach 1 Corinthians? <laughs> you know, we got to talk about difficult things. A couple of things I want you to remember this morning, friends. If you're here and you're not a Christian, there is something I'd like to say. First of all, I'm glad you're here. I mean that. But there is a reason that we take sin seriously. First is because Jesus does. He came to seek and save the lost. He took it seriously. And so we take it seriously. But also because it's destructive. Both to people, the person, and also to the people around them. And because of that, we take it seriously. We don't confront sin because we're perfect. None of us are. Say, I got to get perfect before I can confront anything. You'll never confront anything. Sometimes you confront it just because it's the right thing to do. And maybe if you come to this realization that there's something in you that needs to change, start there first. Clean house first. But we confront it so that it will be addressed. We confront it so that it will be defeated and not have a hold on us and not continue to harm the other people that are around us. That's why we do it. Part of being in a church is that we have people around us that will love us enough to do something just like that. It's not easy, but it's important. Second, maybe a member of this church needs to have a hard conversation with somebody that they love and they need to do it right now. Maybe it's time. Uh, maybe you have sat in silence long enough. You have watched them literally destroying their lives long enough. Maybe it's time to say, I love you. And because I love you, there's some things that I need to say. And I'm here for you. Take every measure for reconciliation. Because there is good news in all of this story. And you see it in John 3, 17. God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. Saved. You know what the word saved means? Delivered from ruin. That's what it means. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here's another important truth. It also shows why the church is so important. Don't just attend here, friends. Don't. Or somewhere else. Don't do that. Be a part of the family. Be a part of the family. I mean, if you came and sat in my living room, I mean, we'd have fun. Don't get me wrong. But if you came and sat in my living room, it wouldn't make you my family. Family loves each other. Family serves each other. Family protects each other. We do life together. That's what family is. And it's the same picture of what God did when he created the church for us. We're family. We do those things with each other and for each other. I'm going to tell you up front, this isn't a perfect church. This is not a perfect church in either the leadership of the church or the membership of the church. It's not. But it's a great church. It is a great church. So I want us to spend just a little bit of time 
A lot in here, isn't it? A lot in this chapter. But first, I want it to have a moment where it speaks to you because it needs to. So here, Paul is writing this letter to these people for their good, speaking some hard truths so that people would be confronted and so that they would return back to Christ. Well, maybe you need to do that today. Maybe, maybe this morning, there are things that are happening even among the church, like the people. It's time to say it's enough. It's enough. And, and because I love you and for your good, where there's actual sin, not pettiness, you know what I'm talking about, actual sin, that you would love someone enough to say something. And what if the world were such that we weren't like them in verse 2 where we're arrogant, but what if people would say, I actually had the expectation that they would listen to me, at least listen. It's just not much like the world, is it? But it should be like the church. Maybe it's, maybe it's time for confession. Maybe it's time for some cleansing. Maybe it's time for some restoration. He says the truth. It's not an easy one, but it's important. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.